I'm Isabeau. I'm Morgan. And this is Womance, the podcast about romance novels, about cottages, about masculine energy, about whales, about strangely masculine energy, about dads, about a certain masculinity, about brothers, about an unnameable masculine masculinity, about making way too much food that is also calorically dense and soft and brown about masculine masculine and masculinity about villainizing women but most of all it's about that first thing romance novels and ourselves (laughs) this week we continue our category is series with Tangled Threads by Susan McCarthy. Uh, Isabeau read that backwards in a Zoom screen, so that's pretty impressive. It is pretty impressive. (laughs) Category Romy, Harlequin Presents Line. It's book number 1372. It came out in June of 1991. Wow. You would never know. (laughs) Uh, Isabel, would you like to know some facts about the Harlequin Presents line? I would love to know facts about the Harlequin Presents line. Awesome. Let me wheel out my chalkboard. <laughs> so Harlequin was actually the original public publishing company. Mills and Boone was their imprint. So Harlequin originally published pulp stuff as we would consider it today, like adventures and science fiction and pornography. Mm-hmm. They acquired, you know, Mills and Boone and started modern day like paperback romance publishing as we understand it today. Why are we talking about Mills and Boone as it pertains to Harlequin Presents? Well, because this is an extremely British book. The author is British. In fact, let's read her like little biography in the book itself. Susan McCarthy has spent most of her life in London, but after her marriage, she and her husband moved to Shropshire. (laughs) The most British of the shires. The author is now an enthusiastic advocate of this unspoiled part of England. What spoiled London, I wonder. Uh, And although she has set her novels in other locations, Suzanne says that the English countryside may feature in many of her books. Standing for the countryside, I see. Yeah, I, I feel like unspoiled is a really strong stance to take. Especially for an island that murdered all of its predators. It's like, there's nothing unspoiled on the British Isle. (laughs) uh and i i I mean like this is like brexit before brexit was a thing totally oh my god yes (laughs) uh i don't know how you managed to make uh your author bio that says two things about you you used to live in london and now you live in shropshire sounds so fucking political so mills and boot I'm going to read this part of the of Wikipedia page as it stands for Harlequin Enterprises now. Uh, the contract with Mills and Boone was based solely on a handshake given each year when Bonnie Castle visited London. He would lunch at the Ritz Hotel with Alan Boone, the son of a Mills and Boone founder, and the two would informally agree to extend their business arrangement for an additional year. 
That's how things were done before women had the right to vote or work. Mary Bonnycastle and her daughter Judy Burgess exercised editorial control over which Mills and Boone novels were reprinted by Harlequin. Hmm. They had a decency code and rejected more sexually explicit material that Mills and Boone submitted for reprinting. But upon realizing the genre was popular, Richard Bonnycastle finally decided to read a romance novel. He chose one of the more explicit novels and enjoyed it. On his orders, the company conducted a market test with the novel he had read and discovered that it outsold a similar tamer. Overall intimacy in the novels never extended beyond a chaste kiss between the protagonists. That didn't last very long because Kathleen Woodowis published a very steamy book and took the world by storm. So Harlequin decided that they had to start publishing steamier stuff. In comes the Harlequin Presents line. So some fun things about this. One of the reasons the romance wars began between America and England is that England discovers that American writers are putting out a lot more than heavy petting in their novels. And they're also creating that they're bringing that same steam heat to contemporaries. One of the things Mills and Boone does to try to counteract this is like, okay, we'll publish more American books. So they choose one American author. Nora Roberts submits a text to be published by Mills and Boone, and they reject her because they already had one American author. They already had their American author. At this point, early in romance, I think it's important to know England was it. I often ask, like, why aren't there more romances set in Ireland? Mm. Like, why aren't there more romances set in France? (laughs) And I think the easy answer is British people aren't interested. British publishers aren't interested in stories in those settings. They're interested in the English ton, right? Uh, Their last name is Bonnie Castle, for God's sake. (laughs) So I think that's one of the reasons we have this standard of historical romances take place in England. But anyways, it is into this, into the Harlequin Presents sexy stew that Susan McCarthy's Tangled Threads is born. The primordial sex soup. I think that's right. I also, in terms of like why England, that the Mills and Boone really gives a lot of context, but I also think that there is like this strong, I don't want to say romanticization in the American, in the American zeitgeist for British stuff, but I don't know. It's almost like this weird homing for the parent colony that shows up in all sorts of weird places. So it makes sense to me that Harlequin is like, you know what sells? Shropshire. It'll sell here and there. That's right. Anyways, thank you for coming to my history lesson. I have to say, like, voice-wise, there are parts of this book that genuinely sound like they were written by Alan Partridge. There's, like, an incredible amount of, <laughs> amount of like, detail and description given to motorways. <laughs> Big air quotes. It is strange. What a vacation colony is like when the vacationers aren't there. It's just, like, the most pedestrian, suburban shit is put on this pedestal. I'm going to give you the rich tapestry of the suburbs but you know what I mean yeah it has a hard-on for Britannia but like none of the parts that I would associate with fun stuff because it is it's a hundred percent motorways the the town that you're talking about isn't it like Newcastle York it's not even a fun port town it's a very working port town and so then it's just like 
this, this though, I don't know, it rains all the time. I'll read the back of the book. And then I think we should, we didn't put this, I think we should talk about the places and how they exist in this book. Um, Okay. And now a reading from the back of the book. The situation was explosive. Penny was trapped in an isolated snowbound cottage with Mike Wolf, an angry stranger itching to get his hands on her brother. In fact, Penny had no idea where Pete was, but it was evident that he'd been up to something and that Mike intended to straighten him out. All Penny could do was pretend, as Pete had asked, that she was his wife (laughs) and practice self-defense against Mike's rugged appeal. After all, things were volatile enough without encouraging the intense physical attraction that existed between them. Wow. I love that you really just glossed over in your reading that her brother asked her to pretend to be his wife to this person. Well, this is a great time to start with where the book opens, which is, uh, uh, they're called like bed sits or something. They're basically like. Yeah, bed sets studio apartments that share like common areas like bathrooms and stuff and that's where our heroine lives she works uh various retail jobs in london she's originally from london she's very work but she's an orphan her parents died when she was young and her brother pete raised her she's got a very cockney accent her brother works various factory jobs and lost all of them he even like tried to start his own business and went bankrupt so now he's working Um, in Wales at one of those like camper sites where you like rent an RV we don't really have them here in the United States like people have RVs that they park at campsites but they do that in the UK and he works at one of those places they've got like all of the campers like tied together chained up together (laughs) for the winter and he's living in a cabin and he calls his sister and he's like hey will you come up here to take care of the dogs I'm going on a trip and she's like yeah (laughs) whatever you say big bro and he's like pretend to be my wife and she doesn't ask a whole lot of questions she's like okay whatever you say we learn that she's a 20 year old virgin man British romance loves a virgin even in their sensual books they call us Puritans but the way these people salivate over a hymen I am so sick of virginity in British books And now, like, since you've brought up the Brexit thing, this unspoiled nature that this author really loves, that all feels of a piece that, like, ew. Yeah. On TikToks, it's pretty funny. I see, like, young people reacting uh, to their counterparts across the pond, and British people will be like, America has this, that, and the other problem. And then an American will cut in and be like, where did we get that from? Where did we get that from? I wonder how we got that. Show me, yeah. I would like you to draw me a roadmap of that particular value system. Show me the lie. Thank you. Speaking of roadmaps, so our heroine goes to this cottage in Wales. Sure enough, this guy she's been warned about, Mike Wolf, immediately shows up with his masculine masculinity and his big shoulders and his hairy chest and and his Geordie accent. And his Geordie accent. I'm glad that you brought up his insane masculinity. But he also shows up in a candy apple red 
big rig. And when I first read about the truck, I was envisioning like a Ford F-150 and I was like, well, that's pretty weird for England because they don't have trucks like that a ton. And this ginormous truck, I could not figure out, but it's like, it's a lorry truck, a transport truck. It's a refrigerator truck. He just brought it back on a boat from Africa. Do not get mad at us. The book says Africa. Right, because he was delivering. Yeah, one of the largest land masses. And so, but he did it for free because he's a good person. He's like a good, he's like a good person. The book says that he was delivering supplies to a refugee camp. But his truck is big. His shoulders are big. His ego is big. His voice is big. His penis, undefined. Undefined. Present. Accounted for. But not... There aren't a lot of details. So we have to assume that the book was using his truck to describe his wiener. His candy apple red (laughs) ginormous lorry truck wiener. So then she's like, I don't know where my brother is. And she makes a series of unjustifiable decisions, which I'm sure we'll get into, and ends up being like, my brother is in Liverpool with your companion, who turns out to be his daughter, who's only 17. And her brother's like 25? Her brother's 29. Our heroine is 20, and our hero, Mike Wolf, is 35. Yes, so he was a teen dad who stole his child from his wife. We'll get into it. So anyways, they he's like, okay, we got to go to Liverpool to find them. And then they stop off at Newcastle, which is just to like get his Rolls Royce, because surprise, he's very wealthy. They go up to Liverpool and they have Chinese food, which is the most important thing about Liverpool in this book. They find the couple and then they go back to Shropshire, right? No, so they find the couple and they return to the hotel, Mike and Penny. No, but but where's Mike's house? Oh. Because his business is headquartered in Newcastle, but like his family home. Yeah, I don't actually know. Like where the wedding is at the end? Aldridge. Not so, th- this is what I mean by the book sounding like it was written by Alan Partridge. Chapter 9. The restaurant was in Aldridge, not so long ago a leafy village, and still retaining much of its charm, though the vast urban sprawl of the West Midlands had almost engulfed it. The fuck? The fuck? The urban sprawl of the West Midlands, like, get We've out of here. We've got to stop the urban sprawl of the West Midlands. <laughs> Fucking leave. Get out. <laughs> Ridiculous. God bless Aldridge, which has managed to resist and retain some of its leafiness. It's leafy village charm. You know what? I'm going to fucking look up Aldridge this very minute. Aldridge. England. Oh my god. Is a town and former civil parish in Wallsborough, West Midlands. Historically, it was part of Stratfordshire. A population of less than 40,000. Well, I mean, I think we're focusing so much on place right now because, like, the author's note really put me in that state of mind. But also, I was thinking about how they go from what would be considered working town. London is like culture, but London is presented in spite of all of its going on. It's multiculturalness. It's art opportunity. Like even though like our heroine is like an aspiring artist or an aspiring illustrator, like none of that is present. Like it's not like she has any weird, cool friends. Mm -hmm. London is three bedsits and one guy trying to pop her cherry. Because I think that's right. But I also want to say that not only is it this 
charmless bed set situation, but it's also her unemployment because she was only hired as a term retail worker for the Christmas season. London is painted as a bleak urban landscape that doesn't actually care about the people who live there and that its sexual mores are not right and blah, 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 blah. London is definitely painted as other, not good. (laughs) A, A sanitized version of Sodom and Gomorrah, I guess. Yes, but also I think the employment thing is really important because our heroine and her brother are both, like, suffering uh, the economy. Yes. While our hero is, like, having this Reagan, or I guess Thatcher dream where he has, like, a full-on shower and walk-in closet with men's and women's clothing in his office. That he worked for himself, right? Like, that is definitely the ethos of this book. Like, if you want something, you have you can't just wait around for it. You have to work for it. And there's this really intense conversation about, like, Penny being sort of driftless. Again, she's only 20. And that, like, she's been thinking about wanting to do illustration, but she doesn't know how to get it. And he basically lectures her about a work ethic and ethos about, like, doing for yourself. And we find out his story is very – Mike – Wolf's story is very much pull him up by the bootstraps. Not only is he a truck driver, which this book relentlessly tells us, but we find out later that he is this secret millionaire who's worked himself up from a grease monkey in a garage to owning a fleet of lorry trucks that do international transport to such far-fung places as the entire continent of Africa. He has a relationship with his secretary, but he feels, no, they keep it loose. They keep it casual, right? And these older women are also problematized. So we meet two of his girlfriends over the course of the novel, even though he and Penny have sexual romantic relations. And these two women are both described as like cool sophisticates who seem to not mind that he has other women in his life. There's so much real Thatcher feminism in this. And I think one of the moments where that becomes clear, he shows her his roles races and she's very enamored of them. And he's like, usually women prefer the small cars, which by the way, have you ever thought of a Rolls Royce as as like a big car? No, no, but I live in America. So I also know. (laughs) Yeah, where it's like, it's got to be a jacked up dually pickup truck before I'm like compensating. <laughs> right. Like if your truck doesn't have hips, is it? can you consider it big? It's just a regular truck. <laughs> it's also very weird to be an American and like have this conversation around car size especially or like how long it takes to get to places. Well, it talks about car size because our cars are very different, but also in terms of like geography, because their trip to Liverpool seems like strangely endless as a road trip and it like takes forever and there's all this talk about how long it takes. But if you look at like Wales to Liverpool, it's like a two and a half hour drive. Really? Yeah, dude. It's like not that far. (laughs) I used to have to drive four hours to get to the nearest shopping mall when I was growing up. That's what I'm saying. The size question in this book is really fucked for me. Yes. This book is very British and very conservative British as well. For a book that is published in what was considered the steamy, sexy line of Harlequin. Yes, it is incredibly conservative. And that Thatcher feminism, I think, where it's so distrusting of the urbane, where his uh, Mike Wolf's girlfriend's 
feel like another version of London because we're not supposed to identify with them. We're supposed to see them as sort of like their morals are corrupted by the fact that they are also career women and like wear pantsuits. Um, they might be 30. They're not married. They might be divorced. They're basically withered hags. <laughs> Disgusting. And I, it was weird to have a book understand those women as incapable of being the women that Mike Wolf would choose. Our 35-year-old millionaire machismo. He was confused until he met the 20-year-old in the pink sweater. <laughs> and her magic vagina. This other woman in Mike's life, the mother of his daughter, who we are only introduced to in flashback. He describes her as like a fiery Italian. And because of that, she like there's no other explanation of her character. We only learn that she would like go out at night and leave the baby at home alone. And so he takes the baby. There's no like question of how she feels about that. He does the hard thing, the right thing, which is kidnapping his baby. Yeah, I think what, what what struck me about the Italian mother and her intemperance and her carnality is like she felt like Bertha Mason. And it was weird to read a version of Jane Eyre um, in this way because you're right, he does come in his – ex-wife is he sees his ex-wife she's drunk he's been waiting for her he's got the baby in his hand and he doesn't confront her at all he's just like I'm gonna leave you here in your drunken hovel and I'm taking the baby and I'm not gonna tell you where I am I'm like that's not a good person move but the novel understands it as as you said the hard choice the good choice because he's a good man well our heroine understands it that way when he reveals it to her, he's like, I guess you think I'm a bad person. And she says, no, I understand you as making the hard right choice. Here's another thing. So this guy, he thinks he's sexually attracted to Peter's wife. And he doesn't want to reveal to her that Peter has run away with his 17-year-old daughter because he doesn't want to hurt her feelings. The hard right choice, right? Even though he's sexually attracted to her. And then he finds out that actually Peter's sister and because he finds out she's a virgin he decides to penetrate her it's consensual but then he's immediately taken aback you know because hymens are so real that anyone would be able to recognize it upon first blush in the dark no less and she's like yeah i'm a virgin i'm not married to peter uh he's my brother and this guy's like betrayal and it's like you were literally lying to her about why you wanted to get Peter. You let her believe that it was like a money thing because you didn't want to tell her the truth that he had run off with another woman. Like, what? what is this? His 17-year-old daughter. It goes on. So they actually get to Liverpool and her brother and his daughter show up at the hotel. It's never explained how they know where they are, but they show up at the hotel and maybe it's because it's the same hotel Mike always stays at when he goes to Liverpool and they were just checking in. <laughs> and one of the interesting things is that she has this travel book with all of these notes next to hotels and inns in Liverpool. And she explains to Mike, like, my brother 
can't afford to stay in a nice hotel. Like, he's not going to do that. Maybe the first night they were here, but after that, he's going to stay at one of these inns that he has clearly marked in his travel book. And Mike insists on staying in his fancy man hotel. This is never problematized nor explained. <laughs> he also, like, doesn't even search out his daughter at these more affordable hotels because he, like, refuses to believe that someone like Peter would stay at a more affordable hotel. Never explained. Oh, the reason why he he says that is because he genuinely believes that Peter is using his daughter as a gold digger. So like he's trying to access the daughter's money. So of course they'd be at a fancy hotel because that's what gold diggers do. Right. Like his daughter, his 17 year old daughter, I guess she could put it on her credit card that he provided her. But then why wouldn't you just like ask for the credit card statement? Right. Like there's no independent financial situation like is he doling out his daughter like enough allowance to stay in starred hotels in liverpool for a week no in cash no 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 No. (laughs) absolutely not and so it like makes no sense but anyways they show up at the hotel and his daughter reveals uh and mike and her have had sex again and it was like real sex to completion more than once And Mike has said, like, I don't care about right or wrong. I just want you. And then with his masculine, 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 masculine hands and force, he uh, has sex with her. And then his daughter and her brother show up the next day. And his daughter reveals that he's been staying at the discount hotels and he's been paying for separate rooms because uh, he wants to wait until after they're married. Uh, And Mike feels sheepish about that. Because he had assumed, like, his daughter was ruined. Um, Yeah. But instead, he's the only one doing any ruining and any debauching. So he looks sheepish. End of story. Never is that hypocrisy confronted. Never is it questioned. Um, Which is weird for such a conservative book that is clearly putting a lot of value on the fact that uh, Pete wanted himself to wait until they were married everything about this book feels like that hypocrisy mike is violently breaks down the door of the cottage where he thinks that pete is finds this young woman and because he owns it he owns that by the way the way they met is that pete is his employee right and so he violently breaks down this door and then is physically threatening of penny and then penny's like i'm his wife and he's oh i guess you kind of remind me of my daughter because she's also very young you must have been very young indeed when you got married then he sort of moderates his tone but he our erstwhile hero at the ripe age of 35 has a sexual attraction to a person three years older than his daughter. Inescapable fact of the text. So that's weird and unproblematized, not enough looked into, especially considering the villainization of his sexually independent other paramours who are of an age with him. And then he's got this whole thing with the brother where, you know, he's been thinking the worst of Pete and Pete's been like, spending his pennies on a separate room so that the daughter can be whatever like the whole thing is just I don't understand what the ethics of this book are and I hate all of it yes yes it's not like the fact that she is significantly younger than him is a is a byway of the relationship it's central to how she 
understands and relates to him. I don't think it's a coincidence that she is an orphan. And like, I think this book is celebrating daddy issues from top to bottom. He like lays out a business plan for her to become an illustrator, which by the way, doesn't involve getting a gallery career. He's like, maybe you could sell greeting cards. <laughs> it's the most capitalist possible like use of her talent and her vision and her dream for herself, you know? But she only has a dream of having a career in art rather than in retail because he gives her the permission to. He validates her in that way. He's always driving her all the time. You know what I mean? I don't think you could have said it any better than like, this is a book that celebrates daddy issues which makes it all the more gross because you're right he's driving her everywhere he's the first man to take an interest in you know her stuff not a coincidence that her father died when she was 12 and her brother who was only 21 at the time like came in to help raise her but he was this kid basically so then like this idea of masculine Burt Reynolds daddy who can literally murder you with his bare hands and or give you pleasure that's that's the move yeah and there's even this time when they're on the outs with one another and she says I suppose you expect me to make your breakfast now and he's like I don't expect anything but if you did, I would appreciate it. <laughs> oh my God. And then she proceeds to make him two full English breakfast. He says that he, she makes him this beans on toast with an egg on top. So much British food in this. And then she prepares for herself only a cheese and pickle sandwich. And he says, gosh, you're just like a sparrow. Like her tininess is celebrated. But not only her tininess, but her big, dark, curly hair. Which, do you know who else has big, dark, curly hair? His daughter. She is so physically similar. Never mind the fact that Pete is romantically pursuing a woman who looks eerily similar to his sister. Mm-hmm. Her father is pursuing woman who looks eagerly similar to Claire. Okay, so Mike ends up being like, all right, you guys can be together if you still want to be together after six months when she turns 18. You guys can get married. But Pete has to come work for me, which he was already doing, but the book seems to have forgotten that. And we'll see what he's made of. It ends up working out. And so six months later, he hasn't spoken to our heroine Penny since he deflowered her. And... (laughs) gave this weird engagement plan to her brother and she goes to the beautiful leafy village of Aldridge to revisit him after six months and to be a part of the wedding. She is greeted by his younger brother, far more age appropriate for her, named Chris and Chris loves her and Chris flirts with her and she flirts with Chris just to distract herself from Mike but she ends up making out with him more than once (laughs) and then at the end of the book she is at the wedding reception and Chris comes up to her and she's like I just can't give my heart to you I'm not ready I'm not over someone else and then she encounters Mike in the house and he's like so you really want to be with me this was all a test six months for me as well I'm also in love with you let's get married so then they have sex and then his daughter walks in on them in flagrante his mother then shows up then his sister then his brother they get into a fist fight presumably Mike is nude when he punches out his brother and then threatens to kick his brother when he's on the ground and it's like you've already gotten him on the ground like why are this is not cool Yeah, this is gratuitous. But, I mean, he's just so masculine. He can't stop masculining all over the place. And then everyone is just like, oh, I'm so happy you actually want to marry Penny because we hated all of your age-appropriate girlfriends who have jobs. We only care for Penny. 
the chi- your child bride. It was so, it, like I just want you to like picture that scene in your head. In flagrante, in walks her other ro- his romantic rival, also his younger brother. He gets aggressive with Mike. Mike, with like a sheet around his waist, hopefully, punches <laughs> out his brother at his daughter's wedding. Then in comes his daughter. She's like, what's all this commotion? And then she goes, oh. And then his mother, Mike's mother, walks in and goes, oh. And then they're, and then his new son-in-law. Penny's brother slash surrogate father who raised her from the time that her parents died. Uh, who is also going to be his brother-in-law, walks in. Walks in and is like, oh. And then they all just laugh. Freeze frame. <laughs> That's that's so bizarre but i have to say the writing in this text does not imply that the author was able to see a picture in their mind and then communicate it well i think the only time because i totally agree i think the only time that this author was clearly picturing stuff was the landscape the cottage and the food the people all vaguely look the same there was a moment where i was is he burt reynolds or is he tom Selleck? oh no he's definitely burt reynolds because he wants to like murder people and tom Selleck is the masculine soft boy version of that there are also parts in this book where i think like was she using a computer for the first time and was she super excited about copy-paste? Because the phrase, the fine jersey fabric skimming her slender figure is used about three times to describe three That's different outfits. Like the really heinous description for me, the part that really upset me as a person is the description of the restaurant. One of the things I think is really interesting is that Mike owns mm. this restaurant in the still leafy village of Aldridge that has managed to resist the urban sprawl of the West Midland. Mm -hmm. And even though he owns the restaurant and he's probably made a reservation, everyone (laughs) in the wedding party has to wait at the front of the restaurant until he arrives with his latest secretary girlfriend, which is weird. But then they get seated in the restaurant. Penny has earlier noted that this restaurant looks like it used to be a pub. So I want you to picture a traditional pub. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to contour that space with the details provided to us by the book. It was busy, but the tables were not packed too closely together. And the decor, Mm -hmm. a scheme of peach and cream, gave it an airy, spacious feel. And there's something about it being like, yeah, a blend of modern and art deco. So you know it's that like 1980s Miami art deco. Inside a traditional pub with a peach and cream color scheme. I want to vomit. I am so offended. The other thing is, like, she's always dressing like she's about 50 years old. Like, her outfit for the wedding, while also body skimming jersey, yep. is described yep. as having, like, a loose v-neck shell top, a pleated flared skirt, and a matching bolero jacket. Yep. Hello, 1991. But it's still made out of body skimming jersey, which makes <laughs> Has Suzanne McCarthy ever worn clothes? <laughs> oh, my God. Has she ever looked at furniture? I like... Has she been to the Midlands? Yeah. She's definitely eaten a full English breakfast because that was... Descri- and a shepherd's pie. And a roast chicken with potatoes. Like, this book is so Britannia. Uh, sometimes things just are what they are. Should we do sexiest part, weirdest part? You start with your sexiest part. Uh, my sexiest part 
is I guess when they're first going in the cottage, when they're first like sort of maneuvering around each other, there's this weird scene where they're playing Scrabble and um, he starts pulling out sexy words. You love that. I do. I love that trope, but I also love the description of him and like how much space he took up. Just imagining him in his like flannel button down and like his jeans and the firelight and the dogs. And then he does body and tongue and kiss and like keeps looking up at her through his eyelashes. I thought that was very sexy. Like I felt tingly at that. Even though I will grant it was very hard to feel tingly in this book. He has a sexual attraction for someone who is way too young but also when it's revealed that his daughter is 17 I'm like everything about this sucks there's no version of this that is actually going to make me feel particularly good even the whiff of death oh god I hope she just dies in the snowstorm (laughs) well I think the whiff of death is actually a really and also his entrance and how every sex scene is somehow like leveraged with violence Like, she's always teasing him until he can't take it anymore. And the whiff of death is, guys, are you ready for this? The whiff of death, our heroine decides it's too risky for her brother to call the house because Mike might yell at him on the phone. That's all of the violence that Mike can exert on her brother, a fellow grown adult. And so she cuts the phone lines in the cabin, but then realizes she needs to call her brother. So she's going to try these Liverpool hotels that he clearly marked in his little roadmap. And so her plan is to crawl out the window, take the mile-long walk to the village, and make some phone calls, right, at the local pub. However, she doesn't realize how long a mile can feel in a snowstorm, which I would love to know what a snowstorm is like in Wales. Like, what's the biggest, baddest snowstorm? Right, and she has a coat and stuff, like a mile, like whatever, that whole scene. But also, like, I I want to, like, center on the fact that she's like, he'll yell at my brother, and that's scary and sad. And so I will literally cut with a knife the phone cords to this cottage because that will be great and then once she does it she's like oh shit my brother's gonna try the line to see if I'm okay because he's a good brother and checks up on me daily and he won't be able to get through he will come to the house now he'll come to the cottage and that will create a scene of violence I need to walk the mile in the snowstorm to call these Liverpool places to tell my brother not to come (laughs) yeah She walks in the snow. She doesn't even make it a full mile before she surrenders to the cold (laughs) to die. (laughs) I want to give you, like, it sounds like we're being insensitive. But for example, in Chicago, there was once a snowstorm at night that was so intense. The snow got so deep that our city buses could not drive through it. So they ended up parked on, like, highways. Local Chicagoans wearing just as much of a duffel coat as our heroine, then just got out of the buses and walked upwards of five miles in the blizzard home. And there were very few, like, I don't even know if there were casualties. Not on the roads. It was, you know, the the real casualties happened with the unhoused, but it wasn't people from the buses. So what we're saying is that Penny is a goddamn light fucking touch and, like, maybe just deserved to die in the storm. (laughs) Yeah, she needs to eat eat a few more cheese and pickle sandwiches before she tries that trek again. 
Also, her decision, I'm like worried about her decision making capacity. She just leads up against a tree and is like, and now to die. <laughs> exactly. And then out of like her fading vision and hypothermia, Mike comes and lifts her up like a bear and like drags her back to the cottage where she gets warm and he like runs a bath for her and like all this other bullshit i know it's hard to be out in a snowstorm because i've been out in a snowstorm and it's it's difficult it is not <laughs> it is not like leaning up against a tree and fantasizing about seeing a light at the end of a tunnel bath <laughs> What was your sexiest part? Like, it is especially hard, like, to get, like, tingly about what is essentially a bodice ripper. Even though the whole time, in our heroine's perspective, she was very inviting to it. She felt very much like she would, like, have, she would, like, shut down because she wasn't sure of what to do. And he would just keep plodding forward. I guess the sexiest part, I do find Mike, much ink is spilled on the point of Mike's masculinity. But I do find it, like you said, attractive the way he takes up space. And I thought it was very sexy when he was sitting with her in the very beginning of the novel. And we've been introduced to him as this force of nature with a Geordie accent. And then as he sits and listens to her, he starts to have this really like empathetic moment as someone who has been, you know, in a relationship with someone who was unfaithful to them as well. I think Mike identifies strongly with this strange woman and is worried about the fact that she's 20 years old and she's been left home alone, you know, by her husband to go be with a 17-year-old. And I think his sensitivity and his openness and his warmth in that scene was another sexy part of the book, never to be repeated again. Also, the way he can put away blood sausage was very masculine. Uh, what was your weirdest part besides, the you know... The almost dying in a snowstorm 400 feet from the cottage and cutting the phone lines... <laughs> yeah and you know the fact that she's 20 he's 35 she's 17 he's 29 yep didn't love any of that honest to god i think yeah the cradle robbing baby napping right both literal and figurative because as a reminder he robbed <laughs> he stole his baby daughter and I think, honestly, it was the British racism that was the the weirdest in a book that I find truly bizarre in every single way and would have said, like, was impossibly bizarre, except that, like, the dad marrying the sister is somehow <laughs> a trope because that also happened in How Can the Heart Forget, our first <laughs> quote-unquote category for the series. I would have said that this that was the weirdest thing, that the brother ends up with the daughter and the dad ends up with the sister. Very Game of Thronesy on paper and was like, what the fuck? That was my weirdest part. Because it turns out that that might actually be a trope in category or like weird family dynamics, sexual dynamics might be a trope that we are going to further uncover, God forbid. The weirdest part for me was the British racism and classism and how those two things are intertwined because his ex-wife's Italianness and she is the daughter of Italian immigrants living in England, is very much othered, wrapped up in this carnality, but it's also wrapped up in class and the fact that our heroine is also wrapped up in a lower class and that our good guy hero Mike Wolf is only heroic because he turns out to be a boot 
bootstrapping secret millionaire. All of those pieces together created a tapestry of the Iron Lady ethos that I find disgusting. And it was weird to see it valorized in this way. Yeah. This book feels like very immigrant phobic in like all of the subtle ways it's disparaging. Like whenever they go to the Chinese restaurant, a white coated wave and uh, fair warning, a word that we do we no longer use to describe human beings is going to be used here. A white-coated waiter with pure oriental features and a rich scouse accent greeted them politely and led them to a corner table. So what's interesting is this book, everyone, like our heroine supposedly has a Cockney accent that she'll fall into. Our hero supposedly has a Geordie accent that he'll pull back on. But the only person who gets their dialogue written out phonetically in an accent is this waiter. It's seen as this oddity because he has a scouse act, like he has a Liverpool accent. Mm-hmm. And you're right. When she describes Mike Wolf as having the Geordie accent, even when he calls her love as like a term of endearment, it's not spelled L-U-V. It's spelled L-O-V-E. <laughs> the xenophobia, the, the the incest adjacents, and that's what it really is. Like, and I think it's important to like call it out for what it is. It's incest adjacent behavior at once there's this really difficult relationship that i think this book has with like femininity where like it's good that she likes a rolls royce better than like i don't know what's another fancy car that he mentions the jaguar and she our heroine doesn't want a big wedding even though her now sister-in-law slash stepdaughter had a big wedding like that it's okay for her to have that big wedding because that's what her grandmother wanted but none of these two good women wants to have a big wedding however they're both still virgins and I think this is the hypocrisy you got to earlier this book is really dealing with that internal conflict of the post Reagan idea of like feminism as a problem and a threat but still being in a state where you're enjoying all of the privileges that were fought for and earned by that movement. And I got to say, another weirdest part, if you'd like to join me under the paratext parasol, is the fact that in my book, in the middle of the book, there is a scratch ticket wherein you could win four free books, a free Victorian picture frame, and a mystery bonus if you got three sevens, Whoever owned this book scratched off three sevens, but did not send in for the prize. Wow. I know. And they got the top prize. This lovely Victorian pewter finish miniature is perfect for displaying a treasured photograph. And it's yours absolutely free when you accept our no risk offer. I love how it's like valorizing the Victorian era. With its picture frames. It's this like postcard that you could pull out and mail to... A Harlequin in Buffalo, New York, to get your free gifts. You're not required to buy a single book ever. You must be completely satisfied or you may cancel at any time simply by sending us a note or a shipping statement marked cancel or, report or returning any shipment to us at our cost. Either way, 
you'll receive no more books, you'll have no obligation to buy. So this is actually a way to like get you into the subscription service for the category. You know what's so funny about that? (laughs) The subscription service, what has felt like a boom in the last year and a half there's a subscription for everything from groceries to dog food to makeup to whatever part where we talk about we're all the protagonist of our own little story but like part of me was like oh man this is so convenient and so nice like I wonder why we didn't think of this before and it's like because we had dummy (laughs) (laughs) and this is such a good reminder that subscription services are like super super old school or even like kindle unlimited right Nothing is actually new. We're always constantly packaging old stuff as new stuff. And it's this is such a good reminder because I have, you know, subscription offer in my email. Yeah, we'll send you the first box free and shipping's on us. And I'm like, word for word, what you just read from 1991. I also love like all of the little upsells that are available in the back of the book. There's an ad for Sensational which is basically a collection of four different summertime-themed category romances by four popular category romance authors, Emma Darcy, Emma Goldrick, Penny Jordan, and Carol Mortimer. And it's seven uh, four stories in one book with 768 pages of romantic reading, like a real value-added way of consuming literature. And then the next ad is for coming soon to an easy chair near you. First class is Harlequin's armchair travel plan for the incurably romantic. You'll visit a different dreamy destination every month from January through December without ever packing a bag. No jet lag, no expensive airfares, and no lost luggage. Just first-class Harlequin romance reading featuring exotic settings from Tasmania to Thailand, from Egypt to Australia, and more. Next destination, Florence, Italy, which is like an advertisement for a new set of categories, right, within this line. But it's also emphasizing the fact that like adventure was such a key part of romance, which I think it is less so now. People tend to stay in one place, but like think of all the towns across England that this book covered. That's true. It's a real road book by the end. The other great thing is uh, Harlequin announcing a new shipping plan. Amazing. Harlequin presents American romance historical and intrigue lines are going to ship May titles on April 10th, June titles on May 8th, July titles on June 5th, and August titles on July 10th. And then Harlequin romance, super romance, temptation, and regency romance. Those are all going to get shipped a little bit later. With only two trips each month to your local bookseller, you'll never miss any of your favorite new author. And then I know you're excited about this one. They are republishing two books by Jane Ann Krentz because she's had a hit. So they're going to put out two of her older books, Man with a Past and True Colors. Here's the thing for longtime listeners, Jane Ann Krenz is also Amanda Quick of our recent pirate book fame. I just love that she writes under two names. And then they're also going to republish Janet Daly's two of her Americana series, Florida, Southern Nights, and Georgia, Night of the Cotillion. Wow. Neither of those titles sound promising. (laughs) And then in the back cover, you can see the complete line of books that are going to be available. Harlequin Presents books that are coming out next month. We've got Sarah Wood, Kay Rhodes, Susan Napier, Sandra Morton. Her book is called Consenting Adults. Whoa. Logan Miller blackmails Talia Roberts into setting up a catering service in his new Brazilian office. He blackmails her into setting up a catering service. She tries to concentrate on her career until she discovers Logan expects her to share both his apartment and his bed. I love that. 
blackmail someone into catering for you. You know, I know that we like talked a lot about how like all the problems with this book, but I I do appreciate the fact that this book doesn't take London to be the center of the world. That's true. It absolutely doesn't. I think a lot of times books tend to think of, you know, New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago as in no way representative of the entire United States. And I would even say like Nashville, Philadelphia, and Orlando are also like, even if you throw those three in, it's still like a a really expansive place. And I, I like that this book doesn't, you know, explores other parts of England that I'm sure a lot of Harlequin Presents readers hadn't ever considered. I think that's true. This book was surprising. I was genuinely surprised. I, I found my wolf to be like very like sexy, which I, I don't love about myself. But there it is. I hear it. <laughs> I also found him to be sexy in the vague way that I find the brawny man to be sexy. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know. That's exactly right. So I am, this isn't a real person. And then a romance novel will be like, he was tall. And I'm like, sounds hot. <laughs> <laughs> this book is like, he was masculine. I'm like, I believe it. <laughs> Exactly. You can tell he was masculine because he thought a cheese and pickle sandwich was not enough food for lunch. Oh, my God. We are all just like victims of our societally constructed ideas of what makes someone virile. It's true. It's like and unpacking it and constantly encountering yourself. And you're like, why do you think that weirdo? A a woman is sexy because she only needs a cheese and pickle sandwich to survive the day as and as long as she doesn't try to go for a walk in the snow. And like a man is sexy because he eats two full English breakfasts in one sitting. Exactly. Like don't fall into the trap that all romance is feminist because it's not. And what category is teaching me so far is that you have to constantly be encountering yourself and I think because these books are so brief because they are really like you can truly read them in a sitting there is no expectation I feel like the expectations are lower it's it's forcing me to look at romance really differently as a practice but also as like an ethos and like also it's like most naked capitalist part which is both fun and important to critically engage with oh in our last episode we alluded to like how technology changes um, and how that's reflected in copyright. So in the last book we discussed, which was published in 1961, I think, um, they talked about how the plates that the book was printed on were totally new, but that the words were exactly correct, which implies this like suspicion of technology that someone is going to misuse it, right, by changing things from book to book. The copyright for Tangled Threads uh, says all rights reserved except for use in any review, the reproduction, or utilization of this work in whole or in part in any form by any electronic, mechanical, or other means now known or hereafter invented. Oh, wow. Uh... Including xerography, which I love the idea that a Xerox was has the word xerography. I've never – xerography. I've never read that before photocopying and recording or in any information storage or retrieval system oh isabel we're fucked it says it's forbidden without the permission of the publisher (laughs) 
It's been a ride. If if the feds come for us, tell them everything. Signing off from this, the last episode of Wild <laughs> You don't need to protect us and we cannot protect you. With that. Loosen the jersey skipping body hugging <laughs> material. But never your principles. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah. <laughs>